Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the Mostly Books Meets podcast this week, we have poet and debut novelist Victoria McKenzie. Victoria's novel, For Thy Great Pain Have Mercy on My Little Pain, which was published on the 19th of January, follows two medieval mystics, Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. It is a slim volume, but between its covers, a world that is long dead is brought vividly to life. It is an exquisite historical fiction debut which explores themes of faith, trauma and women's writing. It was a joy to read. Victoria McKenzie, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. And now, uh, at the time of recording, the book is out there. It's finding its readers. How does that feel for you as a as an author who has no doubt spent, uh, you know, a long time, you know, in isolation with these characters writing your book? How does it feel that it's now out in the world? It's a very strange experience, really. I mean, when you write. For me, writing is a very inward process. I try to forget about the outside world, try to forget about readers. And yet at the same time, you're always aware that the, you know, you are hoping for a readership. You are hoping that people will read and respond to your book. But to have it actually out there and know that people, you know, friends, acquaintances, strangers are, are reading your words. Yeah, it's strange. It's also been wonderful. The response has been much more sort of warm and positive than I'd ever even hoped for so it, that's been a really a very fantastic experience it must be an amazing feeling and i imagine as well obviously um you know this book follows two real life historical um figures and i'm sure this comparison has been made before but from speaking to authors on this podcast you get a sense of sometimes the isolating nature of writing that you know part, part of the writing process is you and the book, which for me, I felt that, you know, there's there's sort of comparisons there to Judy and in her sort of cell with her writing. I'm sure I'm not the first to make the comparison, but to suddenly then have that writing out in the world after that period where it's kind of just you and the story. Does it change the story in any way? Do you feel it's sort of alive now? Now it's kind of finding different readers and does it sort of change the feel of the book for you, if that makes any sense whatsoever? Yeah, that does make sense. And I think it has changed. It's gone from something that was um, very private, but also perhaps more fluid, because I think as a writer, you know, I am a writer who likes to redraft and edit a lot. And so I have these sort of um, what some people call ghost drafts in my head. I remember things that aren't part of the book now, sort of ideas that I had for the book that didn't make it in. Whereas the actual published book, it's something um, very distilled and fixed in some ways. It's sort of concretized. But then you've got this other opening out of it because you've got all these different people coming to it with different reading experiences, different knowledge that they might have of the period or the two women, uh, Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. So they're bringing these new interpretations to it and they're having these other responses um, to it that are quite different and quite diverse. And I know that some readers have said to me that they've never heard of Julian and Marjorie. So it's been really great thinking that I've brought these two fantastic medieval writers to a new readership. 
But then there have been other readers who have known the writings of Marjorie and Julian, and they've had really nice responses as well. So I had one message from someone who said that, you know, that they knew these women, they knew their work, but reading my novel had moved them from monochrome into technicolour for him, which was a really a lovely analogy, I thought, about something that fiction could do, even when you're taking um, real women and sort of historical facts. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great quote. I feel when the paperback comes out, that should be uh, one of the pull quotes they put on the front cover, because that's such a lovely way of um, describing it. Certainly for me, they were names that I were, when I say familiar with, I mean, uh, I mean in that sense that you come across something and your brain goes, oh, this is something you have come across before, but I couldn't have said, you know, where or when. And I think what I found fascinating was when uh, I was fortunate enough to have a proof copy, an early reading copy. And I remember I was looking at it and realising that history can seem sometimes like a kind of a a big sort of lump where it's all sort of mixed up. And uh, realising that these two people existed at the same time, I think, was quite eye-opening for me. I think it's easy to see historical characters as kind of isolated as kind of each in their own little bubble but this sort of brought the living world to life in the sense that oh well these were two people whose timelines kind of crossed over and I found that element of it very eye-opening and very beautiful as well. Well that was really one of the important things for me in terms of the impetus to write the novel because I sort of had in my mind for a few years that I wanted to write a novel about Julian of Norwich mostly because the anchoress experience was so interesting to me But when I started researching her and I came across Marjorie Kemp as part of that Julian of Norwich research, it was fascinating how different the two women were. And I knew I wanted to sort of juxtapose them. But it was realising when I read the book of Marjorie Kemp that they actually met. That was the real impulse for thinking, Okay, this is what I want the focus of my novel to be, to imagine what these two women had to say to one another, who, as you say, you know, they did live at the same time. They did really meet and It's quite a humanising thing Mm. to think that they had a conversation. They said words to each other. And of course, as I sort of show in the novel, their lives were extraordinarily different. So Marjorie was very much a woman in the world, a merchant's wife, mother of 14 children, working as an alewife at times herself. And, you know, she had these visions of Jesus and she spoke about them a great deal to her friends, her neighbours, to people in the street in Lynn where she lived. Whereas Julian's experience with the visions was so, so different. She had her visions just over a very short period of time and she didn't really speak about them because of fears of heresy and so on. And, you know, she became an anchoress possibly in order to have time to contemplate and reflect on those visions, which she felt God had given her for a reason. So, you know, she had she had withdrawn in some senses from the world. So thinking about what these two women who were contemporary but had these incredibly contrasting lives and also what seems from the books like very different personalities mm, yes I mean, it's difficult absolutely. to extrapolate from julian's book as a profound theological text there's not a huge amount about her her life in it but she does come across as a kind of very calm and thoughtful reflective woman whereas in marjorie's book there's much less sense of um controlled storytelling marjorie's you know boastful and boisterous um She's kind of all over the place. So her narrative meanders a great deal, goes back and forth. You know, she drops things in that she's forgotten and so on. So she she comes across as a very different person from Julian, as well as living a very different kind of life. And it was really fun for me as a writer to 
think about how I could draw out that characterization and juxtapose them together. I must say, yes, that's such a the contrast between the two, which really, you know, does come across in the book in terms of how they live their lives. It is such a when you put it that way, you can I can see what sort of drew you to that because I, I it's so fantastic that you have, you know, I, I love Marjorie's, you know, just confidence in the book even at times where what she's saying could be dangerous and could get her in danger there's just um i don't know there's some really wonderful moments where you think oh my goodness you're so close to being in a really dangerous situation here but it just exuding that kind of that confidence despite what other people are sort of saying and then yes you've got this very isolated life of judy and i don't know it's just such a wonderful juxtaposition of the two yeah and i think that you know, a lot of people have been dismissive of Marjorie because of the kind of slightly chaotic storytelling um, and because, you know, her voice doesn't come across as sort of authentic or authoritative as Julian's. But I was, I agree with you in terms of thinking about, you know, the, the risks that she ran to talk about her mm. visions at a time when she could have been burnt at the stake for heresy. And, you know, she was repeatedly arrested for heresy, uh, repeatedly threatened, especially by... Um, members of the church and so although people tend to hold Julian in higher esteem in some ways I really got thinking well what would Julian think of this woman who is prepared to talk about her visions and I really like the idea that it sort of seemed unintuitive but that perhaps Julian would admire that in Marjorie she would admire her courageousness um, and that would sort of give a bit more depth to Marjorie as well. Absolutely. And that that is, yeah, that absolutely comes across um, in the book. I could speak about the book endlessly and we will go back later on. But one of the other things we love to do on Mostly Books Meets is talk to authors or other writers or creatives from the, the industry about the books that they have loved and almost turn them into booksellers for a day. Because obviously we're a bookshop in Abingdon, which is uh, in Oxfordshire. And so the first question I have for you is I've walked into the shop and I'm, I'm looking for a children's book, one that you personally have loved and, and can talk about. What book would you be pulling from the shelf to show me? So the book that I loved most as a child, and it's the first book that I have memories of as a child, is um, A.A. Milne's poetry book, um, When We Were Very Young, which is an absolutely gorgeous collection of poems, which... Um, my parents gave to me uh, for Christmas when I was one. I've still got the same copy with their inscription to me from Christmas 1981. So I've had it a very long time. And obviously I couldn't read it myself at that age, but my parents um, read to me, um, especially at bedtime. And the poems just kind of became part of our lives in a way. I think we, you know, we could recite great chunks of them to each other and we'd just make references to them all the time. And they're completely charming and they're full of interesting characters. Um, I think you know, th things like the, the boy who won't walk on the, um, the lines of the pavement because something bad will happen. I think that was something that uh, as a child you know, I, I, I could relate to. The ch most children fear walking <laughs> on the lines of pavement. Um, there's lots of lovely rhyming poems in it about you know, foxes who keep their socks in boxes, which as a child... Is incredibly fun and gleeful. And then a particular favourite was um, The King's Breakfast, about a king who asks for a little bit of butter for his bread. And there's a great saga of, of going through the queen and the dairymaid and the cow to ask for butter. And the cow suggests marmalade, 
is very popular these days and this message gets back to the king and he's very upset and basically has a tantrum, which again, as a toddler, I'm sure I could relate to. So yeah, it's just kind of become part of family folklore, really, that book. And I have a a young son now, myself, um, who is one. So um, I'm about to start reading those poems to him as well. I expect I'll give him the book that my parents gave me, like the same copy. Um, So yeah, it's kind of a precious family heirloom. I think that's one of the wonderful things about children's books in particular is, of course, they're shared by the whole family. You know, they will be reading to younger members of the family and things like that. And so, as you say, children's books more so than other books, sometimes, not always the case, but can become sort of part of a kind of family mythology and a, a sort of passed down in a way that I feel you don't necessarily see with, you know, more sort of grown up fiction or things like that because of that sense of, you know, being able to share it with the younger members of the family but also because you know the adults enjoy it as well and do you feel as well i know it's very easy sometimes to hear things like this and to you know make connections that aren't necessarily there but of course you are a poet yourself do you think the fun that you had you know sharing these poems with the family probably in some small way kind of planted a seed that uh, developed um, later on i don't know i guess so i mean it would make a lot of sense for that to be true but on the other hand, I wasn't I wasn't much of a reader as a teenager. I read the usual things, uh, Enid Blyton and Roald Dahl and then Judy Bloom and stuff, but I kind of lost my way with books and then rediscovered poetry anew for myself as an adult in a much more um, depressed adolescent <laughs> way. You know, I, I basically got really into Sylvia Plath. Oh, oh yes, yeah, yeah. I, I think lots of people have a Plath phase. Yeah, you know, she's a tremendous poet, but as a teenager, I was late teens, I was pretty obsessed with her. And in a way, it was kind of not particularly joyful. Uh, it was d- doing something quite different, I think, which I needed as an adolescent. But now that I'm in my I'm in my 40s, I'm really trying to think about writing as as a form of play again. Because I think it's easy to get caught up with, uh, you know, you you do these things that you love and then they sort of become a hustle as well. And you're always trying to think, well, how can I be more productive and how can I make this into a career and so on? And I think as a writer that that can be dangerous. You can kill the love of it for yourself. And I, you know, I'm someone who's genuinely loves writing. It is a form of play for me. So... Perhaps I'm trying get, to get back to that reader that I was who loved The King's Breakfast. I mean, when I wrote For Thy Great Pain, that was something that I wrote as a form of play, as a form of enjoyment for myself during lockdown, rather than thinking this is something I was going to get published. So, yeah, I think it, I think that sense of enjoying books is really important for a writer and it's possible to lose it. But I really try to to maintain that still to yeah to think of writing as a form of play in the best mm. sense as something that's not to denigrate it at all something you know play is really important I think really important for our flourishing as human beings absolutely and I think you know that's true for reading you talked about the sort of Sylvia Sylvia Plath phase I was very similar in the sense that I didn't read in my teens I actually didn't sort of grow up really around books so they didn't become a part of my life until later on. 
And I went through that stage where I had a sense of what I should be reading and I enjoyed reading, but I sort of selected books on an idea of what was good to read, what, you know, what is the correct thing to read. And um, you sort of realise that's such a quick way of, of losing the, the fun in it and losing the joy of reading, of kind of just going for things that you think, I don't know, maybe have. Uh, and I'm not, th th I'm not saying this relates to Plath, but just when I was that age that you got into Plath, I was reading, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, I should read, you know, some of the some of the sort of earlier classics and selecting things on that. And I found books that I did genuinely love and would recommend now. But also there are some things that just didn't, you know, didn't talk to me. And one thing we always say in the shop is, you know, we read read what you like the look of and don't worry about i don't know what whether whether you think it comes with a sense of prestige or i don't know uh, it is to just you know enjoy it and uh, uh, play is such a key word as well of just having having fun with it and one day reading you know maybe quite a serious book and the next day reading a kind of a a romance or something you know something a bit more light-hearted Absolutely. Um, I started to write down every book that I read when I was 22. And it's so fascinating to look back over that list because mm. I can see how at that age um, I was kind of floundering. I didn't know what I liked yet. I hadn't read enough to really know what my tastes were. I didn't even know what was out there. So I think, yeah, often you start quite earnestly reading um, sort of the canon or reading classics and reading things that you think you should be reading and it can take a while for you to find actually what it is that you love and often you know some of the classics will be part mm. of that as you say but um, I think what's so interesting to me about reading is how every single reader has their own pathway through it we all have our own idiosyncratic list of things that we've read mm. and I'd be amazed if there was any two people on earth that had read exactly the same books or in the same order Something that really interests me is the way that there are just millions of books and we all kind of pick our own pathway through them and that kind of forms our like our imaginations, if you like, and forms what we think of literature and, and what we then decide we want to go on to read next. Now, I'm quite obsessed with reading as an activity, like not just doing the reading, but thinking about all the things around reading. So I'm very obsessed with writing my, my lists of things I've read. Yes, yeah, that's. I've always felt I should write them down, but I'm just, I'm terrible. I'm one of those people where I'm like, I should write a diary, do it for a month, and then it disappears. So there's bits, there's scraps out there, and there's little book reviews written down, but not anything much. That um, I love that point about the um, no two person sort of library or what they've read being the same. That's actually quite. When you said that, I was I had to take a moment there. It's it's quite a profound thought, and I can't say why, but the thought of yes, each person having a kind of individual kind of internal library that is just completely different from everyone else's. I can't. Yeah, that's that's a really just lovely thing to kind of think about. It's amazing, yeah, isn't it's, it? I'm thinking about how. I remember I read an interview with Rebecca Solnit and um, one of her pieces of advice to readers was read off the beaten track. And I've always really loved that phrase, the idea of, um, you know, just go off and find something to read that you enjoy that you know, isn't the book that's being talked about at the moment or isn't on a reading list. It's just something often, you know, bookshops can be great for that. Just truffle around and serendipity will like 
suggest something to you. So yeah, so I, I love that. And that, you know, I mean, I do try to read a lot of contemporary fiction and I do read a lot of classics, but I also really like the idea of reading off the beaten track. So basically like kind of, yeah, creating my own internal library, as you say, and that all of us has this unique library in, in our minds. And I think it shapes us in, in ways that we can't even know. Now, you said, you know, comparing your reading list from kind of your 20s, you know, it's just really interesting looking back at what you were reading then. In terms of what you're reading, you know, these days, is there a book that you've recently read that kind of stands out for you that you would um, thrust into someone's hand and say, here, read this? Yeah, definitely. So um, very recently I read uh, Kick the Latch by Catherine Scanlon, who's an American writer. It was a the book was actually published the same day as my book, the 19th of January. So we're book twins. <laughs> and it's published by Daunt, who I love as a publisher. So yeah, Kick the Latch is extraordinary. As my tastes have evolved over sort of 20, 25 years of reading, I've definitely become more drawn to the kind of the offbeat, the strange, the eccentric in books. I love thinking about what a novel is and what a novel could be and how you can kind of push those boundaries of, of what fiction is and can do and how it can be structured. And um, Kick the Latch is this, uh, a very short novel about a horse trainer in America. So it's a fairly niche topic for one thing. And uh, Scanlon actually had a number of interviews, I think in person and by telephone, with a real horse trainer, Sonia, who's the main character in the novel. And then Scanlon has transcribed these interviews and shaped them into a novel with very, very short chapters. Um, so they're almost like little flash stories that, that form a whole novel. And everything about it's interesting. Um, the world that Sonia lives in is um, very intense, quite brutal at times, um, but also sort of full of very strong connections between people who all sort of share this love of, of horses and horse racing. Then there's a lot of idiosyncratic vocabulary. Um, uh, Sonia has quite a distinctive way of speaking as well. Very kind of muscular, to the point grammar and syntax, which I really love reading. And all sorts of extraordinary things happen to her. But it's also incredibly moving and, and tender. And in some ways, it's a new way of writing a novel. I'm always really open to that idea of, of where the novel might be going to I feel like it's never an art form mm. that's static that people are always trying interesting things with it so you know you could suggest that this novel is almost a memoir in some ways because Sonia is real and, and you know these are her words but I know that Catherine Scallon will have you know sculpted and honed and incised and shaped all these words as well so it's you know there's also an awful lot of artistry going on at the same time and yeah, I absolutely adored Kick the Latch. I think it's a book that I will definitely be rereading. So powerful. It's, it's warm and brutal and humane and tragic all at the same time, which is what more could you ask for? You'd make a great bookseller because you've absolutely <laughs> sold me on that. I think it sounds like exactly the type of thing I would pick up because it sounds so, you know, if someone asked me, would you be interested in reading a book about a horse trainer? I'd go, um, I don't know if that's my type of thing, really. I, you know, but but it, it's those books that can be such a joy because you think you would have never thought you would read something like that. And then you read it and you, you thoroughly enjoy it. 
And yeah, it's always very interesting to reflect on the changing nature of the novel, uh, the line between, you know, fiction and, and non-fiction, which I think has always been either a, a spectrum or certainly a blurred line. You know, there's no sort of dead, you know, hard line between the two, which I suppose as um, someone where your, your first novel is a piece of historical fiction is kind of something that you, I suppose, you're always sort of considering for writing that book is... Um, is, you know, you've got these real people and you're, you know, writing about intimate moments or things like that where only so much, you know, can be known. And that and that must be, I don't know, a really interesting thing to work with. How did you find that? What thoughts sort of came to your mind as you were thinking about writing this book about these real life people? Yeah, I think it's when you're writing about real people, it's important that you're asking yourself questions all the time about why you're doing it. Because I felt that I was writing this book for myself during lockdown, I wasn't worried too much about thinking like, what right do I have to have to take these people's lives? But I think that it's still a question that that's worth asking. I mean, there's a huge tradition of writing about real people. When you think about sort of Shakespeare writing his history plays about kings or Chaucer, you know, writing about the wife of Bath. It's almost as long as we've had stories, they've been based on real people. With Marjorie and Julian, it was very different for each woman because with Marjorie, she tells you quite a bit about her life in her book, The Book of Marjorie Kemp. So I had, you know, I was sort of working within a slightly tighter framework there. You know, I knew where she lived and who she was married to. I knew how many children she had. I knew what her relationship was like with her neighbours, that kind of thing. With Julian, I had much more of a blank canvas to work with because she tells you very little about her life in her book, Revelations of Divine Love. And in fact, we, we don't even know Julian's real name. The, the name Julian was taken from the church, um, uh, Church of St. Julian in Norwich, where she was an anchoress. So in some ways, um, Julian was actually easier to write for me because I had that blank canvas. And there were certain things that were important to me to bring into her life. So I was aware that she lived in Norwich during successive waves of the Black Death of the plague. Um, including a very bad wave of it when she was quite a young child. And it just seemed absolutely inevitable that she would have been affected by it in some way because so many people died, you know, some, something like a third to half the population of Norwich died. So it was really important to make that part of her life story for me. It felt that it would have been false not to bring that in. And also I read the anchoresses. They needed to pay their way, essentially. They would choose to go into these rooms and live in these rooms forever. But, you know, they had to be fed. Um, and often they would have a, a maid live in an adjoining room who would take care of them, prepare their food, take away their slops and ashes and so on. And so I also felt that it was important to be true to that aspect and that probably she was from quite a wealthy family. So there were these little sort of hints, basically, that I I worked with to build up um, what is really a completely fictionalised life for Julian in my novel. Whereas, say, with Marjorie, obviously I'm inventing conversations and so on, those kind of intimate thoughts um, that she doesn't necessarily share with you in, in her book. But what mattered to me, I think, is that 
everything felt plausible. I didn't put in things that I knew couldn't be true. So even with the awareness that this was a work of fiction, it mattered to me that I was still having some kind of important relationship with what I felt was likely to be true about them. Yes, and it's uh, going back to that lovely quote about sort of bringing the monochrome kind of into Technicolor, uh, there must be something very very rewarding and of course you say that you wrote this as an act kind of for yourself during lockdown there must be something so rewarding about kind of injecting lifeblood into these historical characters because they were real people they had lives which means that they it's easy to forget the kind of mundane everyday stuff you know when you look up the wikipedia page of julian of norwich you know which i know is not the only resource but just as an example um you know there's very sort of scant information as you say about her because she didn't um she didn't uh, write about herself but of course you know she was a flesh and blood person and yes there's there must be something so exciting in the kind of act of creation of kind of bringing that life back into the story and that really comes across i would say sort of on the page you know reading it it's lovely to sort of meet these people in the flesh as it were yeah absolutely and i think that as a writer it's that kind of um creating the sense of a, of a real human person that's what gets my imagination excited basically so when I was um, starting to do my research um, for the book I read sort of books on social history and I really was very conscious that I wanted to bring in things about what they might have eaten the things that they wore the the feel of fabrics against their skin what Julia might have heard and smelt from her cell um, in Norwich it was this kind of focus on the the tangible detail that you know is the kind of the detail that makes up our own lives that I really enjoyed writing I especially enjoyed writing scenes Julian's cell thinking about how because she's a mystic you know people can can treat her almost as if she doesn't have a body but i i really enjoyed kind of colliding this idea of these these very you know beautiful visions and this very profound theological text with reminding the reader that she is a human woman with a body and so you know she would have had to cope with her body in this cell and this there would have been bare earth on the floor perhaps you know it's very likely that earwigs and wood lice and so on would have would have you know sort of crept in it wouldn't have felt like a holy space in that way I, I really enjoyed kind of yeah as I say colliding that kind of um contemplative life of prayer that we associate with an anchoress with the the physical the tangible the very real detail that a human person with a body and bodily needs bodily functions would, would have experienced and thinking about how she would have coped with that especially in those early days and weeks and months um I, I struggle to believe that anyone would would go into an anchorist cell and immediately feel at peace immediately be kind of calm and at ease with the idea that they were going to live in this single room for the rest of their life so for me it was imaginatively really exciting thinking about how as a human woman she might have struggled with that Mm. It's easy to see sort of people in the past as completely separate to us. I suppose it's that, um, and I've you know completely forgotten who it's by, and I've, I'm definitely wording it wrong. But the whole thing about the past being a foreign country, kind of you know something separate to us. But 
you know, just because we live in this really connected world and we can't personally imagine uh, someone, go, you know, going to live that life, you know, they were still human beings like us. There was no sort of big difference there. And without giving too much away, that bit in the book, that those first initial months or years even in the cell are, you know, really, really beautifully and very effectively done. It, you know, that bit's really sort of stuck in my mind that those segments of those early, you know, early days in the in the cell because as you said yeah it wouldn't be easy for anyone holy or otherwise yeah it can't be an easy thing to do absolutely and I think those bits were very fun to write thinking about pushing the limits of the novel as well I use a lot of repetition in those parts because I really love the way I think one the novel as an art form one of the things it does best is give us access to another person's mind another person's thought process so I really enjoyed trying to think about how I could show that sense of confinement on the page, particularly through using the way that I've formatted uh, the text on the page. So, you know, there are some bits that are a little bit experimental. There was one bit where I repeat the word stone walls again and again, and it basically forms a kind of double layer of text across the page. I'm almost imagining that as a, a kind of verbal wall across the page, kind of blocking it off, showing how her... She can't get past the fact that she's trapped. She just can't think herself through it at that point. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was a lot of fun um, to write in a lot of ways. Those bits in Julian's cell. Taking a step away for their great pain for a moment, and uh, we're back in the bookshop. And now I'm asking you if you could recommend a book that you feel changed your life in some way. So um, in my twenties. I had no idea what to do with my life. Um, I finished my undergraduate degree. I did English and philosophy and um, just kind of a fluke, really. I ended up getting a job in a university library and there I found myself working with a group of amazing people who were, it's just such a cliche to say it, but they were so passionate about books. And this was kind of a revelation for me to be around people for whom it meant so much. And they were so excited by books. And I started, um, well, they started recommending things to me. They started um, sharing a lot of books with me. And it was around this time that I first started thinking about being a writer myself. So I spent a lot of my 20s procrastinating from this idea. And I read an awful lot of books about the craft of writing. And one of the books that really made an impression on me was Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. It's one of those books that's great to give someone who's thinking about being a writer because it's the most, it feels so honest and it feels so kind. And it tells you that everything that you write to start with will be rubbish. And that's great because it really takes the pressure off you. I think nearly all writers suffer from that very powerful inner critic who's telling you not to bother, you'll fail, everything you write will be rubbish, so there's no point even putting pen to paper. And it can really destroy the love of it for you. Whereas in Bird by Bird, she's very reassuring. All those early drafts will be rubbish. That's how it is for every writer, whether you're writing your first novel or your 21st novel. But what matters is that you keep writing and that you keep redrafting and that you edit. And it's, you know, it's almost like panning for gold from those early drafts. You start to see what it is that you were trying to write 
simply through writing. I'm a great believer in writing to discover what it is that you're trying to write. And that's just the kind of, I think, permission that people need to, to just get on with it and enjoy it. And it's only through getting on with it and enjoying it that you'll actually find out what kind of a writer you are and that you'll begin to see, you know, what it is that you want to say and you'll begin to learn how to shape your words and learn techniques and and become a better writer. I don't think, I'm not a big believer in the idea of the genius or the born writer. I think, you know, people can have talent and so on, but I mean, I, I was a terrible writer and for that great pain, it's not a novel I could have written in my 20s. You know, I spent a long time writing and redrafting and editing and reading and learning from other writers. And yeah, Bird by Bird is just one of those great permission giving books that says it's okay, be rubbish, you'll get better. Um, And she's also great on other things as well. So she talks about how destructive jealousy can be. You know, if you you see other writers around you that that are doing well and that can also be something that can have a really pernicious effect on your own writing and simply stop you writing. So yeah, she made it seem like that it was something that was to be done for its own sake because you enjoy it. And I think that's so important with writing. I guess it comes back to that idea of play that we were talking about earlier, that writing is something you should feel very free to experiment and not always be thinking about what will the end product be, what will the result be, but simply to enjoy the experience of it itself. Yes, absolutely. That sounds like a great book. And I think when you were saying, you know, you don't sort of believe in this idea of genius, I think it, it amazes me. We have a lot of people that come into the shop or who talk about, oh, you know, they, they'll mention in passing, I don't know, I've thought about doing this one day, but oh, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I do wonder if it's because people have their idea in this head that sort of, you know, writers are born with a pen sort of already in their hand and they're drafting from a young age. And of course, some people do, you know, from a very young age, you know, tell stories or write, although I, I really everyone does just in, you know, in different ways. And yeah, I heartily agree with that. I think it's a skill that can be can be learned and like anything, just practiced. And it's something that um, is open to everyone. Absolutely. So that, yeah, that book sounds very, very inspiring. I really believe that. I feel that it's such a shame. I feel like people waste so much time thinking that something isn't for them when actually just have a go. I've taught creative writing for a long time and so many people that I've taught have been people who've been put off writing by by a casual remark made by an acquaintance that, you know, oh, if it doesn't come easy to you, then you're not a writer, that kind of thing. And that's just nonsense. And it makes me really frustrated because... I do think that anyone can learn to be a good writer, essentially. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, you know, anyone can learn to be a truly sort of great idiosyncratic writer. You know, I I can't teach someone how to be Cormac McCarthy because Cormac McCarthy already exists. But I think that, you know, everyone can learn to develop their own voice. And what's so wonderful about about writing and literature is the kind of the variety, essentially, the diversity, all the different stories that we have to tell. Yes, again, like those very individual sort of internal libraries of, of what we have read. There's the flip side of that. There's kind of the internal library of what you as an individual could put out there or has the potential to, which again is a kind of, you know, a really 
don't know there's something very exciting um about that image so so that one is that is that a book do you find yourself sort of going back to it because you said you you first read it in your 20s is it one that you sort of will pick up again every now and again to sort of flick through yeah definitely sometimes you know it's funny I've been writing a long time but I still need someone there to hold my hand sometimes and to say you know it's okay it's okay to you know that this story isn't going that well or in fact, sometimes I'll even procrastinate from writing completely. Um, you know, a lot of writers talk about the second difficult second book right, syndrome, yeah. which I'm you know, definitely facing now. So, yeah, I will go back to Bird by Bird, I think, um, and re- try to remind myself of all those excellent sentiments that I've just <laughs> expressed to you and try to actually believe them <laughs> and make them real for myself and remind myself that, yes, it's OK that those first drafts are rubbish. Yeah, there's a big difference, isn't there, from when you're giving advice or saying so that yourself to someone else and actually believing it yourself. There's such a huge gap. Absolutely. I'm such a hypocrite. Yeah, we're all hypocrites. I think we're all we're all guilty of doing that. And of course, finally, and of course, you know, we have been talking um, about For Thy Great Pain, but in the bookshop now you would have, a, and this doesn't uh, happen very often to booksellers, but I, as the customer, I've spotted on the shelf, I've spotted your book and I go, oh, what's that book there? If you were to, and I, I understand this is difficult, if you were to hand the book to someone, and give them a reason why they would read this book or, or, or to to sell it as if you were a bookseller, what would you be inspired to say? Well, that is a difficult sell. I think um, a writer's innate modesty uh, has to be overcome at this point. I suppose in some ways, a very clear kind of angle for me is the fact that this is a book about two women who are absolutely essential in the canon of, of women's writing. Um, with Julian's Revelations of Divine Love being the first known book in English by a woman and Marjorie's The Book of Marjorie Kent being the first known autobiography in English by a man or a woman. So there's that aspect of like, here are two women who are absolutely fascinating, who are who are writers. And although they're studied in medieval literature departments around the country and so on, I still think there's an enormous scope for them to be better known. You know, they're certainly not as well known as sort of male counterparts, for example. So there's that aspect. Um, I think there's a certain um, way that both women are wrestling with questions that will probably always be questions that as human beings we're wrestling with. So that makes it sort of interesting in that way. Um, What's a good life? How should we live? With Julian, she goes through um, terrible grief. So there's questions about how do you move through that grief or how do you live with that grief and continue to live, you know, a good life, not just living in the shadow of that grief. With Marjorie, perhaps more pertinent questions about how do you get along with the people in your life? Um, How can you gain esteem um, and be beloved and and be a good neighbour and a good wife and a good mother and so on? Um, And there's certainly, you know, I touch on a lot of topics like motherhood as well that many sort of contemporary readers might find resonance with. I kind of don't like the word relatability (laughs) and yet I find myself using it all the time. Um, So there's that relatability aspect there, I think, to both of them in different ways. But I think the other side of the coin to relatability and that is really important in literature 
is difference as well. So, you know, these are two women who are also living the kinds of lives that are very different from ours. It's 600 years ago. Um, most of us aren't anchoresses or having visions of Christ. And so for me, for me, that's interesting in itself as well. Um, you know, literature is a great way of living different lives. Mm. Um, that's partly why I enjoyed Catherine Scanlon's Kick the Latch. I'm never going to be a horse trainer. Um, probably never even going to go to the races. But it was absolutely fascinating to learn about how another human being does live her life on this earth. Um, books are a fantastic way to, to get inside the mind of other people and to, to just walk in their shoes for a little while. And I think, you know, that's as valuable as, as thinking about questions of, of what do we have in common as well? Um, what do we find relatable in other people? I think they're both really important. That's a yeah, really good point about relatability. I think... Um... You know, publishing and, and certainly book selling as well, we, we can be guilty of using sort of buzzwords because, you know, sometimes you need a kind of easy shorthand for, you know, in order to communicate to people, give them an idea of how to navigate all the books that are out there because there's so many wonderful books coming out every single day almost, as well as the ever-expanding backlist of books that we all say, you know, oh, one day I will read that. And so you need, you know, sometimes those those sort of buzzwords can be great shorthand for kind of helping people navigate their way through but of course they are limiting as well and i think that's such a lovely point yes you know it's great to relate to a character but every human is relatable you know we there will be something about their internal life that we can connect to and what's really wonderful is when you're reading something you know and you think well yeah i would never live this life it would be either impossible for me to or i just wouldn't personally but yet i am fascinating i, I i'm drawn in and certainly for me reading this book that absolutely had that that element of being sort of let into a world that there's no way i could exist in and yet you're there and you're, you know, you're, you're connecting to these people. Now, I understand, Victoria, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but you may have prepared a reading for us from Thy Great Pain. I'd love to hear it if you're willing to share. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to read a section that's from sort of the middle of the novel. And the novel is written in the form of interweaving monologues by Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich. So I'm going to start with a section that's that's Marjorie speaking in first person uh, for a little while. And then I'll read a little section that is Julian speaking, um, just to give a, a sense and a flavour of both voices, because they're very different. And I really enjoyed juxtaposing those. So this is Marjorie. I mentioned to my neighbour, Agnes, that Jesus had spoken to me again. And she said, I tell you as a friend, Marjorie, to stop your nonsense. Nobody believes it and you are doing yourself no good. It doesn't behove you to tell these lies. People will shun you and your husband too. Then see how well his trade goes. These words stung like a hornet and I was greatly saddened. But then I realised that this was part of my trial on earth as ordained by God and that many saints and holy women including Bridget of Sweden, had been called liars by foolish people who knew no better and who were not visited by Jesus. Julian. Those early days, weeks, months, years of being in my cell, I am glad I will not live through them again. Though I knew that God would send me trials and tribulations, I did not predict the form that these would take. I had thought I was ready for the life of an anchoress. I had wanted to prolong each moment of my life, 
to get closer to experiencing time as God experiences it. Not the instantly dissolving moment, but something larger and more encompassing. A stillness that doesn't pass as soon as you think yourself into it. I'd thought I would live as slowly as moss in my stone cell. I'd thought I would step out of my life as soon as I stepped into the cell. But I was still me. Nothing had changed. I was myself, with all my usual racing thoughts and yearnings and memories and foolishness. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it, really, having heard from the book itself. For Thy Great Pain, Have Mercy on My Little Pain is out now. It's certainly at Mostly Books online and in our shop, but it will also be in your local bookshop or wherever you decide to buy your books from. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. It's a fantastic book and um, I can't wait to see where it goes after now it's uh, out in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.